can be seated. I'll dismiss our kids, uh, school-age kids, to go back. Who are they following today? Miss Amber, Miss Sarah. All right, they're going to go back and have a great time. And while they do that, I would invite you to open up your Bibles to uh, Ephesians um, 2, 3, and 4. We'll kind of be dancing around um, all of those passages today. And we'll try to do it in a succinct amount of time. We'll, we'll try. Let me pray for us real quickly um, as, uh, as we find our places there, as we settle our hearts to really hear from God's Word and ask Him to, in a laser-like way, focus it to the areas of our heart that need to hear this. Father, thank You for, the, uh, for Your Word. Thank You for um, its power in our lives. You tell us that it's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Um, able to divide even joints from marrow. And uh, Father, we pray with uh, this laser-like focus, Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts to confess confess and repent of any sin that we've been um, excusing this week, um, to encourage those that are weary, to remind us of our uh, identity in you as sons and daughters. Pray, Father, you would speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we've been in a uh, series, took a little break last week for our Mother's Day and dedication. Uh, we've been in a series called Foundations, and uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about being an abiding church um, out of John 15, and then we talked about being a generous church out of uh, the letter that Paul wrote to Corinthian or Corinth, and then uh, today we're going to talk about being a unified church. And uh, there's a lot of places we could go to talk about this idea of unity in Christ. And I jumped around several different passages. And then somewhere at the beginning of the week, uh, maybe on Tuesday, I settled on uh, Ephesians 4. But then throughout the week, as I began to read Ephesians 4, I changed that and said, you know what, let's go to Ephesians 2. And then even this morning, I tried to change it again and go to Ephesians 3. So we're just going to kind of get the whole picture here of this uh, letter that Paul writes to Ephesus, explaining to them, really, really in three parts, one, what is theology? What, what is the theology uh, or Christology of Christ at the center and God's plan for every person, right? And so the first two chapters are really about theology, And then the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3 is really about our identity in him. So if Christ has done this for us, then this is who we are. This is who we are, adopted sons and daughters of Christ Jesus, co-heirs with him. And then in chapter 4, really 4 through 6, he kind of gives us this picture. Okay, this is how the church should look like. This is how the Christian life should look like. And he talks about wives and husbands and kids and parents. And he talks about spiritual warfare. And he covers really a a gamut of things. But today, in speaking on this topic of a unified church, I'm going to start in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. We can all admit, of any of us who've walked uh, this Christian walk very long, aware that we have an enemy. The Bible calls him um, Satan or the devil. And it's very evident that one of his tactics, right, is to create this us versus them dynamic. And people that look like us or act like us, they find, our, they find themselves in the us category in which we normally give lots of grace to. We uh, acknowledge their strengths and celebrate them, and we tend to ignore some of their faults. They're in the us category. 
But then people who aren't like us or people that we don't understand very well or people who look different than us, we normally put them in the them category. And we don't extend much grace to them at all. As a matter of fact, what we do is we highlight their faults and we ignore their strengths. Those are the them. And there's this us versus them. You see this dynamic playing out in the very first family of Abel and Cain. This us versus them. You see it all throughout, woven through all of uh, the narrative history of the Old Testament. This us versus them mentality. You see it culminate really in these disciples who when walking through uh, Samaria one time, so frustrated with the people there, they literally asked Jesus to call down fire from heaven and burn the village to a crisp. This is the disciples who, they just don't get it. There's this us versus them mentality. And I want to argue that that's never the heart of God. You don't see that anywhere um, in the heart of God, this us versus them. But this is a tactic of the enemy that he tries to sow. As a matter of fact, in our scripture reading for today, the main high priestly prayer of Jesus, what did he pray? He prayed that we would be one. We would be one, this idea of unity. We would be one just in the same way or like manner that Jesus and the Father are one. That we would be one. That unity and this intense love for one another would be the theme of the Christian church. When people saw the Christian church, they would see this radical love for one another. They would see this theme of unity reign supreme. But one of the names that's given our enemy is devil. And devil literally translated means slanderer or one who puts himself in between two in order to divide them. And so he's at work today trying to cause division, even within this church, trying to bring division, even into the capital C church, trying to sow seeds of division or mistrust, deception. And this is what Paul is speaking to in Ephesians. This reconciliation of Gentile and Jew that we are now one together in the family of God. In Ephesians 2, 3, and 4, we have this picture of this city of God within the city of man, this family of God, of God bringing people together who were once strangers, even enemies, and making them family together. Not only that, but as they mature, they become a picture of God to the watching world so that We should be able to say to the watching world, you want to know what God's like, then look at his bride, the local church. We should be a picture of unity against the backdrop of division, a picture of real community against the backdrop of individualism, a picture of interdependence against the backdrop of independence. And as we move through these, and I'm going to try to do them quickly and string them together so that it makes some sense to us. There's really three broad stroke um, pictures or descriptions all speaking towards unity that Paul brings. Look with me in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. Starts off saying, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He starts off verse 19 with, So then. And I don't have this on the screen, but if you look, uh, if you look up above a few verses... In verse 16, he says that he might, Jesus, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we have access to one spirit, capital S spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, to the Father. So there's this picture that there was no greater angst than between Gentiles and Jews. And they literally hated each other. They had to coexist. But the Jewish people thought they had this uh, supernatural right as being these chosen people and that they were. But it caused this pride to rise up in their hearts. And that was never the heart of God. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis that the people of God were to be a light to the surrounding nations. But instead of being a light, they began to operate in this us versus them mentality. And so Paul is writing them a letter and he's trying to explain how things radically change when the gospel enters the picture. The first description that he gives here is this, uh, this idea of belonging. Belonging. Because we have this vertical unity with God through Jesus Christ, we also have this horizontal unity with all other believers. And then within that, he gives us a few pictures of what this looks like. One, he gives us this picture of a fellow citizen. It says in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. In comparison to that, you're no longer that, but now you are this, you are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. We've been identified now as in the same nationality. Maybe you're as excited as I am when the Olympics roll around, right? And you begin to cheer for the bobsled team that you didn't even know really existed or the curling sport or whatever those things are because they represent your country and with with pride with nationalistic pride you begin to cheer for them this is this picture that we were once outsiders we were aliens we didn't belong we didn't fit but now we are we are part of God's we're in God's country part of the city of God within the city of man. Once outsiders, once aliens, once strangers, now part of the group. Once a tourist in God's economy, but now a citizen in God's kingdom. I remember when I was in fifth grade, we went to new schools quite a bit. We moved around as my dad took different positions in starting new churches or trying to heal other churches that had been split, and we moved a lot. I think I counted up 14 or 15 houses I lived in before I graduated high school. That was a lot. I remember first day of fifth grade year um, uh, going, to, uh, going to a new school and uh, wanting to impress my buddies. Um, and I didn't fit in that first day. And so after school, I told dad, dad, I'm just, I'm just not feeling it. I need some new shoes. Because we go and we play, you know, outside recess and all these kids had new shoes on and they were really fast. I needed the new shoes that would make me really fast. I went and bought a, bought a pair of McGregor's from Walmart. Um, and they were going to be the thing, right? And so the next day I'm just gearing up. You wait till these kids see me at recess today. I got the McGregor's on. I'm going to be flying. Um, you can see by my size, like Allen's were not fast ever. Um, the McGregor's did not help. But I remember as a new kid at these new schools, just trying to fit in, just trying to, just trying to fit the part. I was an outsider coming in, and I just didn't feel like I belonged there. And this is this picture that Paul's painting here, that we were once aliens and strangers, 
But no longer are we that way. Because of Christ, we are now fellow citizens. In other words, you don't have to prove your worth anymore. You have ultimate worth because of Jesus. You don't have to go add McGregor's or anything to your spiritual arsenal. You don't have to speak a certain way or act a certain way. No more posing needed. You don't have to prove your worth. God doesn't look down from heaven and consider the different parts of the body worth more than the others, a preacher more than a professor, or any rank and file. He just sees his people part of his city. But Paul kind of drills this, uh, this illustration a little further. The first is this picture of fellow citizens. The next is this picture of God's own household. It says members of the household of God. You've been invited to be part of God's family. It's good to be part of the family. We're not just strangers, naturalized and allowed to be in God's kingdom. We're, we are family. This is such a big, st- big step. It's more, much more of an intimate description, this word that Paul uses to say we're now part of God's household. This week, one of our students, uh, Sully, met uh, Peyton Manning at a urinal. <clears throat> You can go to his Facebook page and watch the video. It's hilarious. Um, while standing at a urinal, he asked Peyton to sign his jersey. I don't know if there could have been a more awkward conversation at the moment. One of the things is, is that I laughed when I watched that video. It was such a great video and so cool, Sully, that you got to do that. Sully met Peyton Manning, but he doesn't really know Peyton Manning. I doubt he gave you his cell number. I doubt you've texted him a few times since then, asked him for a ride here and there. You don't really know him. You've met him, but you're both citizens, right, of the same country, but you don't really know him. He's not part of your family. You don't reach out to him like you do your brother or sister or your dad. And this is the point I think Paul's making. He says, we once were strangers and aliens. Now we're part of the citizen, right? We're a citizen in in the kingdom of God. But even further than that, we are part of God's family. That God loved us to such an extent That he wouldn't stand for just having us as fellow citizens. He had to make us fellow sons, fellow heirs. Hebrews 3, 6, I love this, says, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Jesus says, through uh, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, he says that I am not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you get the picture here that we are joint heirs, sons of the father, part of the family? Verse 15 would say of chapter 3 calls us the family in heaven and on earth, the whole family, that we are part of God's family. I heard a guy say one time that only a, only a child would wake up a king at 3 a.m. We have that kind of access. We are part of God's family. Not only does he extend that access to us, but he invites us to come. He invites us to come in at any moment, at any time, without posing, without reservation. Says that we should enter the throne room boldly, as my little four-year-old Hudson does, to come in our room at any time. He comes in several times a night. He does not care what time it is. Oftentimes I get this picture. This is what Hudson does. And it's the sweetest thing, and and, and you're you're so aggravated that he woke you up. He comes in, and you see his door open. He's turned all the lights on. His door connects to our room. We're just kind of like, what's going on? What you need, Hudson? I just want to hug, Dad. I'm like, oh, you little turd. You... <laughs> come on, man. Come get a hug. 
and goes back and gets in his bed and comes back an hour later for another hug. It's the kind of access we have as part of God's family. You ever had one of those weeks where you just blew it? Where you just, just nothing happened right and you snapped at your wife and you weren't, you weren't attentive to your kids and maybe you said some things you wish you wouldn't have said and you get to Friday or Saturday or Sunday morning, you've had no real time with God, you feel just powerless. Like, man, I just blew that week. And oftentimes, if you're not careful, the enemy will come alongside you right in that time and say, you know what, Luke, you did blow that week. You have no right to enter into the throne room anymore. How dare you even try to pray? We lose all desire to do that. We don't want to cry out to God. Had one of those weeks one time, several years ago. I have them often, but several years ago, I have one of those weeks. I I called my dad and told him the very same thing. You could tell I was down and discouraged. I said, Dad, I just, I just had a terrible week. I just, man, I hadn't been there for my kids. I hadn't been the pastor I should. He said, well, son, you should really just go to God and just confess that to him. I said, well, I just feel powerless. He told me something that revolutionized my life. He said, Luke, your power is never based upon your performance, ever. You have access to the king because of what Christ has done, and you are a co-heir with Christ, and you should go into the throne room boldly at any point. Only a child would wake a king at 3 a.m. We have that kind of access because we are part of God's family. The next illustration, we could camp out there. The next picture he gives us is not just a fellow citizen and not just part of God's own household, but we are the building. The building, this physical representation of Christ on earth. Look at verse 20 with me. Chapter 2. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the building. We are not in a building We are the building. Every one of us who claims Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are the building. We are the dwelling place of the very Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, living within us, working within us. And together, we are fit together to be a perfect picture of community to the watching world. We literally, it says, being built together, not individuals doing our own thing, not even a few of us together working to make a wall. Only a two by four or ceiling joist. When we exist in true community, we are the representation of Jesus Christ on earth. Not in a building, but we are the building, a building worth far more together than we are apart. As a matter of fact, he would even say there that we are being fitted together. That God is using us for his purposes. And as he does that, there are things about our life that he begins to change. Some areas he prunes and cuts off. Others he sands a little. But a house is never built without a saw. And so God has promised to do this work in us. And he's promised that he's going to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Paul would say in his letter to Corinth, one degree of glory to the next. That he's working in us to transform us, he would say in Romans. To transform us. 
It says here that we're growing into a holy temple. There's a process to this. There's this already but not yet that, yes, we've been adopted into God's family. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We have direct access to God the Father, that we've been invited to come boldly, that he's already won the victory over sin and death on the cross. That's the already part. But then there's this not yet part that we're not, we're not perfect yet, that God is working us, conforming us into this image of Jesus. And we still battle against the enemy. We still battle against some of the effects of, um, of our old self, our old way of life that tends to creep back in, that we have to, that's what even he's talking about in Romans 12, that we've got to die daily to the flesh. We are growing into this holy temple one step at a time, this process of maturing in the Christian faith. Again, this isn't entirely individual. It's in the context of community that this happens, that we encourage and we are encouraged, that we rebuke and that we're rebuked. That we love and we are loved. First Peter chapter 2, I don't have it on the screen, would say this, that you are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. We are this visible representation to the watching world of what it means to be part of God's family. And God's Holy Spirit is working in us, even now. And we're a better picture together than apart. Again, we could spend so much time there. I want to get to the next picture. The first idea we kind of threw out was this idea of belonging. Can I just encourage you with this today, that you can belong in God's kingdom? You don't have to try to prove yourself anymore. I hate that the Western church has become this place where we come in with all of our religiousness or whatever we grew up in and we kind of put on this false face and we try to act like our life is a little better than it really is the church becomes this uh social media post of our life that we just want them to see the good parts at the good angles right we just want them to see our life together and most of our lives if we can really readily admit is not is not instagram worthy right God is working in us and on us and through us. But we belong. We belong there. We've been adopted into the family. The book of Revelation ends with this picture of this marriage supper of the Lamb in which we'll all be seated around the family table. We'll all have a place. Let's get to the next picture, this picture of interdependence first picture was belonging the next is this interdependence i say interdependence here's how it's defined as the dependence of two or more people or things on each other now god could have created this elite band of uh christian uh christian swat team that these super superstar christians that could do everything themselves a whole room of Westons that can play and preach and count. They can do a little bit of everything. Doesn't it just make you crazy, people that talented? But God didn't create many Christian superstars. As a matter of fact, that's not in his character. As Jesus is always pointing to the Father and the Holy Spirit is always pointing to the Son and the three of them in perfect unity and we are made in their likeness. Skip over a page to chapter 4. In verse 11, and again, we don't have time to really dig into this. Maybe we'll do this another time. I, I really feel 
burden to talk through this at some point. But I'm going to give you the scope of this interdependence of us having to lean on each other. And he, gave the, uh, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to the church. In verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, why did he do that? In verse 14, he tells us, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking, the truth and love were to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There are really two types of churches that we see in the West and really across the world. One is what I like to call the orphanage church. And the orphanage church normally has one of these Christian superstar pastors that they hire, and they hire him to do all the work of the ministry. There's one dad or maybe two, and then there's a lot of little babies dependent upon the pastor. Normally, this happens in the West. About every hundred congregants you have, you hire one pastor, and you hire him based on his skills in ministry, and he comes into this small town or small church, and they give over the ministry reins to him and say, okay, Pastor Fred, I need you to do all the ministry, and he does all the ministry work. He visits all the hospitals and preaches all the sermons. He even folds the bulletins. He just does the whole thing. The orphanage church. Every so often, the Orphanage Church will have a business meeting to discuss whether or not they're getting enough ministry out of their superstar pastor that they hired. And if he did well, he'll get another year, and maybe he'll get a little Christmas bonus. And if he didn't do well, they'll let him go, and they'll hire someone else who can do more or better ministry in his place. Maybe some of you are familiar with that type of church. It's the most common form of church in America today, but it's patently unbiblical. We see no example of that anywhere in the pages of Scripture. The other type of church is the Ephesians 4 model of the church. It's one where the pastor equips the members of the church to actually do the ministry. It doesn't mean that he doesn't work in ministerial ways. He certainly does. But the people band together to understand their call as every minister, um, every member a missionary that they make the visits, that they speak into the direction of the church, that they care for each other, that they begin to carry on new initiatives. We had a new initiative this morning. We met with a prayer team. Several people came to us and said, you know what, we'd like to start a prayer team. I said, that's awesome, let's meet. It was, it was so encouraging for me as a pastor to hear these people who had heard from the Lord and were willing to take a step of faith and even cost them something, I'm sure, sacrificially. And they said, you know what, let's do this. God's calling us to do this. That's not something that I initiated. It's something that God spoke to people's hearts. And they stepped out in obedience to respond. We have about 300 different people that attend here on a given month. We have four area pastors that oversee different community groups, three of which are elders. That being said, how many ministers should Covenant Church have? 300. 
Or maybe I should say everyone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because there's no such thing as an unsent Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian that comes for the, for the religious goods and services that a church offers, but they don't want to do anything. They don't want to fulfill their call in ministry. God has uniquely wired and called you to be a missionary agent, to be an agent of reconciliation, to be light in the midst of darkness, to be a city on a hill. He has called you for that very purpose. And only in the West, in our churches, where there's the spirit of religion, do we have people that come in and they want the church to be a cruise ship. They want the church to please them. They want the really good buffet. They want the 24-hour pizza bar. They want the temperature just right. They don't want the, they want the pastor to talk about money. They want him to speak too harshly. They just want a cruise ship. Again, can I tell you this? That's nowhere found in the pages of Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you look back to Acts 2 at the first church as it's being developed, as the power of the Holy Spirit came, well, just go read the description of what they did. They devoted themselves to teaching and preaching. They liquidated some of their assets so they could care for other people, that they broke bread in their homes daily with each other, that they gave generously and sacrificially. There's no cruise ship there, nothing even about a buffet. There's just nothing there. It was these people who were radically changed by the gospel. They had this new identity. They now belong to the king of all kings. They're now joining with him and where this whole thing is headed, and we get the privilege to serve with joy. Banded one to another, this band of brothers and sisters that are moving, partnering with God to extend the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness. God has given us all different roles and different gifts, and sometimes he only reveals part of the message to any one of us. That way, if we don't come together in leadership and in community, then we don't get the full picture. To use a sports analogy to some Some of us in here have a ball, and some have a bat, and some have a glove, and maybe some people have the bases. But no one plays baseball until we come together. Or maybe another illustration of a bike. I've used this picture before, that some of us are the wheel, and some the pedal, some the frame, some the brake, some the handlebars. But again, unless we work together, we're going nowhere. We don't roll properly. Unless each part understands they belong to the king of kings, they're part of his family, have direct access to God, they can enter boldly at any time, no longer a slave to sin, but now a slave to righteousness. That's our identity. And from that identity that we begin to walk in obedience, cooperating with the Holy Spirit as he's there to guide us. This is why it's interdependent. One selfish, stubborn, or lazy part will affect the mission and picture of the gospel to the watching world. Paul uses the analogy of a body. The some are toes and some the neck and some are arms, all necessary for proper function and really to fulfill our destiny as a local body. God has designed you, uniquely wired you, and called you to play a part in the redemptive history of the world. That should not be this uh, dutiful sigh that we take. Oh my goodness. It should, we should respond with joy. We don't even have to do the work. God is doing all the work. He's the one leading us as the very Spirit of God led the Israelites uh, with, a, with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they would look out of the tent. When the cloud moved or the pillar moved, they packed up their tent and they followed him in the same way. The Holy Spirit within us leads and guides and directs us every day. 
Because the Father's working and he's moving in people's hearts and he's softening and he's calling you to go plant a seed. He's calling you to go meet a need, not, not in your own name, but in the name of Jesus, that we go and we meet needs and we extend the kingdom of God by bringing good news to our area. Again, from identity to obedience. And that should be the very nature of our life. This is not about you. This is not even about your gifts. This is about partnering with God and extending the kingdom to the very ends of the earth. And some of you, he's been calling for a long time. He's been prompting you. And you felt it and you didn't want to do it because it's, it can be fearful. You don't know what's on the other side of disobedience. What if you look silly? What if you're not good enough? The enemy would throw slander in there that you'll never amount to much, that you don't have any power. But what do we need more than God's word to say that we've got everything he says in Peter? Peter says that we've got everything for life and godliness. Everything at our disposal right now. Maybe your calling is in some spiritual leadership as a pastor, teacher, shepherd, prophet, or apostle as it's listed there, using your gifts to equip the body, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Maybe your calling is to serve in an official role as a deacon. Or maybe to use your gifting to love on our kids, to greet people on and on, to serve with this gift of hospitality, of cooking meals and welcoming people into your home. However, your greatest ministry gift will be used to build the body and to reach the lost. That's why God has given them to you. The fruit on any given tree is not for the sake of the tree. It's for the passers-by. And the same thing true in your life. The fruit that God develops in your life is not for you. It's how we become a city on a hill. It's how we become the city of God within the city of man. Let me get to the last picture. I didn't start a timer today, so that's, that's troublesome for you. The last picture is that of unity. Belonging, interdependence, a unity. Unity is kind of the driving force and it's kind of the bow that's placed on top of it at the end. It's all done in unity. And it's unity, not uniformity. Uniformity says that we all look alike and think alike and act alike. We're like these uh, spiritual Christian robots. But that's not the picture at all. The picture is one of unity in spite of diversity or unity within diversity. As I said earlier, there was no greater hostility than between the Samaritans and the Jews or the Gentiles and the Jews. And it was for that very reason that God included them as leaders at the table. The gospel overcame their hostility towards one another and made them one. That's what it talks about in, in Ephesians 2 where we started. For he himself, it says in verse 14, I don't think this is on the screen, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's broken it down. There's no more reason to be hostile towards anyone. He's given us this incredible power to love people who are unlovable. He's given us this incredible power to extend grace and forgiveness to people who do not deserve it. Just as we did not deserve it from him. He has broken down the wall of hostility. Then why, church, do we live lives of hostility? There's a false wall there. It's not even there. It's gone. Jesus has taken it down because of the cross. And he's invited us into this great redemptive story. 
to proclaim from the rooftops that there's no more, no longer a wall of hostility between us and each other or between us and our Heavenly Father. That we can walk in unity. Paul's very message here is the ground is level at the cross. Nobody comes in with a resume. The power of God works in us to create a spirit and environment of unity. And here's the sadness that exists in most of our churches because unity within diversity takes a lot of work. Most people have congregated to churches that are like us. They have the us versus them mentality. They go to the churches that maybe have similar gifting. So you got all the baseballs at one church and all the bats at another church and all the gloves at another and no one plays ball. And that's sad. Because no one gets to see this beautiful picture of unity that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit in perfect unity. Walking together forward. And that's what he's called the church to be. And that's his very prayer and the high priestly prayer before he's about to walk through the very hardest point in his life and ministry. He is crying out to the Father. He's not crying him to alleviate necessarily the pain. He's crying him, you know what, these disciples that you've given me, Father, make them one. And not just one in just a general sense, like we get along. No, one, just like you, Father, and I are one. That's why he says in chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, I am a prisoner of the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Here's the part, maybe you would underline it or highlight it. And your device, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I love that. Eager to maintain. Eager to maintain. Maybe you've made the mistake before of telling your kids about the treat before it's ever here. About vacation when it's still weeks away. Or about a snow cone after school. And they, you tell them before school, and then it's every second, it's just about that. It's just about the thing. When I go on these trips, my kids know I bring them home a little surprise. At least I try to. Poor Ellie Joyce. I mean, she is waiting for me, watching like a hawk. I mean, as soon as my truck rolls in, she is jumping up. She does not care that I'm there. She cares that the gift is there, right? Because I told her that it's coming. There's this eagerness with, within children and maybe even within us. This is what Paul says should be alive in the church, that we are eager to maintain unity. We don't create the unity. The Holy Spirit does that. There's nothing you can do that can muster out unity. The Spirit creates unity in the church. Only we can demolish it. Only we can grieve the Spirit in this. Only we can destroy it. And Paul says, you know what should be alive in the church as this picture, as this, this commitment, this eagerness to maintain unity. You got a lot of gifts floating around. You got the balls and the bats and the bases. And a lot of people are kind of excited about the gift that God's entrusted them. And you should be excited about it. God's uniquely wired you to live out in this destiny of your calling. Absolutely, He's done that. But if we're not careful, we'll get proud. Well, this is why I think this is in there to kind of be guardrails for us. Just this quick reminder that your gifting is not the point. Your revelation you receive from God's not the point. It really isn't. Your role's not the point. Your prophecy's not the point. You're serving in kids. Your great talent in leading worship or preaching or serving the body. None of those are the points. Maintaining unity in the body is the point. 
The main characteristic that Jesus said would mark his church to the watching world is this radical love for one another, this real, authentic unity. Paul even said that what is good, that it's not, it's not, even, it's not even worth it if you speak in tongues but don't have love, if you talk, you know, if you can hear this incredible revelation but you have not love, he says, then your gift is worthless. It shouldn't even been given to you. If you can't maintain unity of the Spirit within the local church. The real issue is this. In spite of all our differences, in spite of our diversity, in spite of where we came from or what we're passionate about, will we be committed to maintaining the unity of the Spirit within our fellowship? And I would say this extends even outside the local church, not even just to our fellowship, but all the churches around that are preaching a true and genuine gospel-driven faith, that we should seek to maintain unity with them, that we should seek to bless them and pray for them and exalt them. And we're all growing in this. Some of us a little arrogant because we just discovered what our gifts are. We're struggling with the identity piece. Some of us walking through a midlife crisis. We've been doing this a while. We're burned out, overwhelmed, angry. We're just a spiritual family maturing. Verse 15 says that we should grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ. Christ himself being the cornerstone. Verse 20 of chapter 2. You know the cornerstone was the major stone that was set down. It had to be large enough to support the superstructure. It had to be so accurate because all the walls were conformed to the angle of that stone. And every other block in the entire building fits into that stone in some way. So the cornerstone was the thing that framed everything. It was the thing to which everything was adapted. The cornerstone was the support, the unifier, the connector, the strength giver. It was everything. And that is Jesus Christ. Not a pastor or a preacher or a worship leader. Not a strong personality within us. Not a name that's on our sign out front. There is no house and no temple and no church without Jesus. If Jesus is not alive and active within us, then the people gathered here might as well be at a concert. We meet in vain. In church, let me give us this stern warning that if we're not careful, this will happen to us too. It's happened to churches all over the world that are just empty shells of what they once were because they made it about themselves and not about what God's called us to, not about knowing Christ and making him known. They've made it about their preferences and not the priority. Many of them still meet every Sunday, but they meet in vain because the presence of Jesus has been removed. Can I lovingly remind you, church, this morning that you belong? Full acceptance through Jesus and his death on the cross. You're part of his family. There's this interdependence here that God's given you gifts that work together with other people's gifts so that when you work together that you're really a picture of the gospel to the watching world. And then all of this is supposed to be done within this framework of unity. That means when the enemy comes and begins to slander, you know it's him and you don't participate. That is not your nature anymore. You've been set free from that. And you're working to maintain with eagerness the unity of the church. We're going to take communion in just a second. I want to close with this beautiful prayer 
Again, I almost preached just on this prayer. It's just phenomenal. Communion is this uh, external representation of this inward reality that's happened. It's what connects us to the family. It reminds us that we're not out there sojourning on our own. We're not just a group of individuals that we're a team that have been woven together by Jesus Christ, the master builder. That we've been created to do good works that have been determined beforehand. And so this communion is just this reminder to us that we're all part of the same family. There are going to be millions of people that participate in communion on the Lord's day to day. All over the world. Some churches persecuted. Some belong to maybe a different tribe, but all underneath the name of Jesus. There have been millions that have gone on before us. Hebrews calls them this great cloud of witnesses that are testifying even now to the power of God at work in our lives. Here's what Paul prays for this young church. I'm going to say this prayer, and I'm going to say a prayer over us, and then we're going to take communion and worship a little more. I'll be standing in the back if you'd like to talk to somebody or pray. That's what Paul says in verse 14. For this reason, I like to think of Paul praying this over me, over us as a church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Church, what would it look like for us to be filled with all the fullness of God? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly then all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, would this be true in our body? That the power works within us. That we would know what it means to be filled with the fullness of God in this mortal body that is every day wasting away a little more. This gospel treasure within broken vessels. And Lord, not for our own good or to cause any pride in our own hearts. Lord, if anything, we desperately need humility. We definitely need you to lead us to repentance in the areas that we've strayed off the path to the spirit of religion and apathy that has seemed to seize most of us in this room, at least many of us. Or that we would see this opportunity to participate with you in redemptive history of the world as a joyful invitation. And Lord, we would look back to this moment. I pray today that some altars are built in the lives of people and family to where they're just, they're done playing games. Lord, surely it's not just about us gathering on a weekly basis to check a box, to sing a few songs. but Lord, to worship with our family that we'll be worshiping with forever. Overwhelmed with gratitude for what you've done in us and through us and what you want to do, even through our obedience. 
Father, if there's people in this room who they're not yet part of your family, they've not, they've not trusted you as Lord and Savior, that they've maybe been playing a religious game or even attending here, Father, my prayer, Holy Spirit, would you reveal that truth to them, illuminate it in their hearts. I pray you make them miserable if they run from it. I pray that they would take a step of faith today. For others who need to get off the bench, start using these gifts that you've given them, you've created them for. Unique roles in your kingdom. And they just took their ball and went home. Would you, would you give them joy again? Remind them the joy of their salvation, of what it means to be part of your family, and unleash them into this great work of obedience to bring you glory. As we take communion, Father, remind us of our identity in you, sons and daughters, adopted, loved, given a new name, it says in Revelation, a new name. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You come when you're ready. Take communion.